It is a great honor and pleasure to deliver this lecture in memory of J.G. Voss. His influence in extending his own father's legacy is a, it's almost legendary, uh, not least in the two decades he devoted to Geneva College and in the 33 years he devoted to Blue Banner magazine, largely in support of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. But of course, all of us stand on the shoulders of others, don't we? Um, it's important that all of us remember that while still insisting in line with Jesus' instructions that we are at best unprofitable servants. J.G. Voss was mightily influenced by his father's approach to biblical theology and helped to shape it, as has just been explained, because he put so much of that material together. So why doesn't the Bible read like a systematic theology. Sometimes the way systematic theology is taught, students are given the impression that if God had known better, he would have put it together as a systematic theology. Nobody puts it quite that bluntly, but there's at least a little bit of an overtone of that. Let's begin with some definitions. <clears throat> what is theology? Oh, at the risk of just playing word games, it's the logi of theos. That is, it's the science of God. It's how you talk about God and think about God. It's the word regarding God. It's the logos regarding God. And in that sense, anybody who says anything at all about God is engaging in theology. You cannot get through life without being, in some sense or other, a theologian. But when people use the word theology today, they use it in a slightly narrower way. That is, it's disciplined thought and discourse about God, not casual thoughts picked up on YouTube or something. It's a disciplined structure. What then is systematic theology? Well, it's theology that is set out as a system, in a systematic array. And as the term is used predominantly today in the West, that means it is predominantly atemporal. That is, it is ordered logically. It is ordered topically. It is not ordered along an axis of history. It's not ordered in terms of a sequence of disclosures and time. Rather, it's in some sense synthetic. You look at the whole Bible and you ask questions like, what is God? Who is Christ? What did the cross achieve? What does the Bible say about the Holy Trinity? And so on, and so on, and so on. And the answers that are given tend to be structured in atemporal categories as the questions themselves have been posed in atemporal categories. Systematic theology may slip in a little bit of time now and then and say, what's the difference between law and gospel? What is the connection between Moses and Jesus? But by and large, those questions are more heavily shaped by biblical theology, which we'll come to in a moment, than by systematic theology, which you can see for yourself by looking at the index and the table of contents of any systematic theology. Which discipline then is primarily ordered atemporally, topically? Ideally, systematic theology is also committed to addressing its own age. 
If your only systematic theology is Calvin's Institutes, the first draft of which he wrote when he was 26 in the first half of the 16th century, and then it went through various uh, revisions and, until he, he died in his late 50s. If that's your only exposure to systematic theology, then as excellent and remarkable as that four-volume set is, um, it, it's nevertheless, in some ways, best thought of as historical theology. That is, historical theology is virtually the same thing as systematic theology in a certain slot in time. So if your systematic theology is yesterday's systematic theology, or the day before systematic theology, it's veering off into historical theology. Because theology at its best, systematically put together, is grounded in scripture, but aims to address the current culture. Do you, do you see? It's one of the strengths of uh, systematic theology well conceived. All right, that's systematic theology. Biblical theology. What biblical theology does is add a temporal dimension. It adds time. Now, the expression itself is not transparent. You might think that biblical theology is any theology that's biblical. It sounds reasonable to me. But in that case, systematic theology can be biblical. If the systematic theology is faithful to the Bible, then it's biblical. And if it's biblical, then it's biblical theology. And indeed, there are some people who use the expression biblical theology that way. So that biblical theology is nothing other than good systematic theology. And in that sense, there's no essential difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. It's just more faithful. That's all that is meant. And if you come from that tradition, God bless you, go in peace. You can snooze for the rest of the lecture. Uh, but I'm going to use the term biblical theology in a slightly different way, the dominant way in confessional circles at the moment. Biblical theology in this sense puts an emphasis um, on the dimension of time. While systematic theology derives its answers from the whole Bible, biblical theology keeps watching the sweep of redemptive history and asking when the revelation was given. Not then particularly, what does the Bible say about God? But what does the prophet Isaiah contribute to the doctrine of God at his particular slot in redemptive history? In other words, there is a temporal dimension that remembers that the Bible itself is made up of 66 documents, many authors in three languages written across a period of about 1,500 years. And uh, that has a bearing on how we understand the discipline of biblical theology. In the words of Gerhardus Voss himself, in his essay, The Idea of Biblical Theology, biblical theology, he says, is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic disclosure of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. Now, I use fewer big words than that. But let me unpack what he says, because all of it has to do with time. It is, the, it is nothing other than the exhibition of the organic process of supernatural revelation. You see, it's a display of the process of that revelation, rather than the synthesis of the whole after the fact. It's the process in its historic continuity and multiformity. That is, you keep your eye on history as it is disclosed across time. 
So I think I'm in reasonably good company when I stress the importance of time as a defining element in the definition of biblical theology. So what I propose to do then is to sketch for you several of the ways, there are six, in which biblical theology is distinctive primarily because of its emphasis on the dimension of time. Now, some of the earliest of these are easy, they're obvious. For, for those of you who are visitors and don't read much biblical theology, some of this may be new. For those of you who are biblical theology students, you are quite permitted to say in the opening half hour, well, he's not telling me anything I don't already know. That just shows that you're well-trained. And, uh, but I hope that by the end there may be some dimensions, perhaps, that are not quite so common. Number one, biblical theology is consistently aware of the Bible's storyline, and thus where individual books and biblical corpora fit into it. The storyline can be set out in a great variety of structures. It can be very, very simple. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's biblical theology. But it is on such a broad scale that um, it's only a whisker removed from systematic theology. Now, break it down. Creation, fall, judgment in the flood, the rise of an evil generation after the flood, Babel, the calling out of Abraham, and thus the entire flow toward the creation of a covenant people, eventually to be called Israelites, the patriarchs, the descent into Egypt at the time of Joseph because of famine, the years in Egypt embracing slavery before they are called out by God at the Exodus, complete with the plagues and so forth. And then the giving of the law at Sinai, and eventually entrance into the promised land under Joshua. Now, that's still not very finely grained. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty big structure. I haven't talked about um, the striking of the rock in the wilderness. I haven't talked about uh, the waters of bitterness. I haven't talked about manna. I haven't talked about the institution of Yom Kippurim, the, the Day of Atonement. Um, but all of those themes individually are picked up somewhere later in the Bible, mostly in the New Testament. So that if we're interested in how things get going and run through to the whole Bible, then ideally you, you want to be more finely grained in your biblical theology. But it would take me a couple of hours to give a finely grained survey of salvation history, of redemptive history. It would take quite a lot of time. But let me remind you of a few of the next pieces. Yes, they get into the promised land. Then the period of the judges where things spiral down again and again and again in cycles of decay and corruption. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Oh, God, how we need a king. But when they go after a king, they, they go after a king because they want to be like the surrounding pagans, not because they want to have God's own representative. Saul does not turn out very well. And then they have David, a man after God's own heart who also commits murder and adultery. One wonders what he would have been, what he would have done if he hadn't been a man after God's own heart. <laughs> but nevertheless, it is the great Davidic dynasty, and that sets up another polarity, another theme that 
that resonates right through to the announcement of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. It sets up another theme that you really need to trace through all of the Bible. But David, Solomon, Solomon connected with wisdom, that's another theme that needs to be traced through the whole Bible. David, Solomon. Solomon then, proverbial for wisdom, but sinking down into a morass of sin, Calvin in his Institutes says somewhere, I think it is book four, that when God's determined to bring judgment on a nation, one of the first things he does is raise up fools for their leaders. Now, if you want to apply that to any part of the world that you know of today, that's <laughs> up to you. But nevertheless, it is uh, remarkable that that's what happened when Solomon died. Rehoboam was a twit. I mean, he, he, he really handled things so stupidly. It's unbelievable. But, but nevertheless, uh, that was part of God's means for bringing the nation into judgment. Then you split the nation into the Israelites in the north and, and, and the, the, the Judah in the south. And that runs on then for another uh, several centuries until God, disgusted with the idolatry of the north, sees to it that they're taken off, at least the leaders are taken off into captivity under the brutal Assyrian Empire. Then 135 years later, by which time the Assyrian Empire has been overtaken by the Babylonian Empire, the southern tribes are taken off into captivity um, under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And um, uh, at this, this point, the walls of the city are taken down, the temple is destroyed, the Davidic monarch is no longer on the throne. One wonders where the promises of God are. God himself declared Jerusalem was the city of the great king. Now where's the great king? Where's the city? And then in fulfillment of the prophecies of uh, Jeremiah, the prayers of Daniel, um, eventually God raises up a, a, a crew to return, initially 50,000. And um, in due course, then, there is the rebuilding of the temple under the ministry of, uh, of uh, Haggai and others. And then eventually the building of the wall under uh, Nehemiah and the repopulation of the city and so on. But still, there is no Davidic king on the throne. That takes you down to about 400 B.C. Then what happens? Well... <laughs> Biblical theology is interested in what happens in those intervening years, even though those intervening years are not described to us in canon. What's, what's interesting is that the, the, the Babylonians are taken over by the Medo-Persians, and the Persians are eventually beaten up by the Greeks. Alexander the Great and all of that gets to the borders of India and dies at the age of 33, and his mighty Greek empire is divided amongst four generals. One of the generals lives just to the north of Israel, the Seleucid dynasty, and the other, another general lives just to the south in Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty. And little old Israel is squashed in between the two in no man's land. And it goes back and forth and back and forth and wars and skirmishes and, and, and so forth. Until in 167 in the north, there was a wretched king called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he decided he would establish paganism in Jerusalem once for all. He made it a capital offense to own any part of the Bible. All priests should be killed. He made it a capital offense to observe the Sabbath. He sacrificed pigs by force in the temple. And up in the hill country of Judea, there was a man with uh, three sons. The man's name was Mattathias. He was a priest. And he decided he wasn't going to have any more of that. When somebody was sent up to kill him, he killed the messenger from uh, the Seleucid dynasty. And his first son, Judas the Hammer, 
Judas Maccabeus in Aramaic. Judas Maccabeus started guerrilla warfare. For three and a half years, there was warfare, 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 until finally there was a set piece on the bank of the Orontes River, and the Syrians were beaten once for all. And for the first time in 164 BC, for the first time in half a millennium, Israel was able to establish any form of government it wanted. So what did they do? Did they look up to see who was the surviving heir on the Davidic line? Nope. The rebels themselves took charge. So when they had the chance to reestablish the Davidic line, they blew it. And by 63 BC, the Romans took over under Julius Caesar. And that's the world into which Jesus was born. That's the world in which he ministered. That's the world in which he died and rose again. And the church, as we think of it, this side of Pentecost, with all of its lines of continuity to the old covenant, is first and foremost a Jewish phenomenon. And then by God's own planning and decree, the church reaches out into half-breeds like Samaritans and into the Gentile circles. First of all, God-fearers like Cornelius and reaches out farther, eventually going to every language and tongue and people and nation. And that's why we're here this evening in Beaver Falls. That's the Bible storyline. Not very finely grained. I could make it a lot more fine. But that's the Bible storyline. And biblical theology is interested in in any bit of scripture, locating where you are on that storyline. So that from that vantage point, you can look backward, you can look forward, and you know where you are on the storyline to see how the Bible itself is put together in its own terms. Because it is not structured as a systematic theology, even though it warrants systematic theology. All that systematic theology does is presuppose that however diverse the human authors, there's one mind, God's mind behind it. So you have to presuppose some kind of consistency. That consistency can be formulated in a variety of ways. That's called systematic theology, especially when you keep asking questions about the synthesis of the whole, do you see? But biblical theology keeps focusing down and down and down to where you are on this redemptive historical plot line. That's my first point. Number two. Biblical theology is therefore aware that although God stands behind all the Bible as its ultimate author, God chose to work through many human authors with their various contributions, styles, and emphases. Now, before fleshing this out, let me draw a contrast between the Bible's self-understanding and the Quran's self-understanding. Did you see Muslims believe that the Quran was given by God, by Allah? But they believe that it was given by dictation by Allah to one man, Muhammad, who was himself illiterate and had to memorize it before it could be passed on to somebody who would write it down. And therefore, we know what language God spoke. He spoke Arabic because he delivered it in Arabic. And it's all of one piece from one mind in one form of address, in one language. That's why Muslims will tell you, devout Muslims will tell you, that the Quran is only in Arabic. All translations are mere interpretations. If you really want to study the Quran, you must learn Arabic. 
Which is one of the reasons why Arabic Muslims feel themselves to be, know themselves to be, a cut superior to Muslims from Pakistan, where the dominant language is Urdu, for example. Or to Muslims from Iran, where the dominant language is Farsi. Because, after all, the language that God himself used was Arabic. And it was given by dictation. When Muslims speak of the word of God, they mean the dictated word of God, quote, unquote. That's what they mean. Now you come to the Christian Bible. And it's written by a lot of different authors with a lot of different styles in three different languages, dominantly two, but a few chapters here and there in Aramaic, as well as the two dominant ones, Hebrew and Greek. And even two contemporaries like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're looking at things from a different historical angle. Jeremiah at the time of leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in 586, he, he's, he's in Jerusalem. He's dealing with a monarchy. Ezekiel's already been transported in, a, in an earlier cycle of, of uh, transportation. He's already by the banks of the Kebar River. He's been there for something like 11 years. And both of them are saying, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, because if you do, God's going to crush the entire city. And when Jeremiah says those things, he's dealing with his contemporaries. When Ezekiel is saying those things, he says, you know, it's so bad, God is going to crush them in any case because they will rebel. You, you, you're going to have no home to go home to. Imagine how popular that message was. I don't think Joel Osteen has ever studied Ezekiel very closely. So even from the vantage point of two near contemporaries with something like the same message, different vocabulary, different emphases, different structure, different amounts of apocalyptic uh, genre, um, and, and written from different uh, historical vantages point, vantage points because of the different geography. So, so the Bible has this vast array of human authors with, with uh, different styles. John doesn't sound like Matthew. First Peter doesn't sound like Galatians. One and two chronicles go over the same history roughly as one and two Samuel and one and two Kings, but look at the matter from a different angle, namely from the south, much more distinctively, and so on and so on and so on. Which is why Christians have had to think through what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired by God. All of it is God's word, even though it's also human words. It helps to remember that God gave the Bible by inspiration under different modes. So, for example, we're told that God dictated some parts of Jeremiah to Jeremiah. Jeremiah received it from God. Jeremiah dictated it on to his scribe Baruch. Baruch wrote it down. And when in due course the enemies come along and find this scroll, and they rip off a page and drop it in the fire. Read the next page, rip it off, drop it in the fire. Then they read the next page, rip it off, drop it in the fire. Frightened people will say, is the word of God so easily destroyed? But believers are supposed to look at that and laugh out loud. God gave this. Do you think he's forgotten what he said? What he does is give it to Jeremiah again, and Jeremiah gives it to Baruch again, and Baruch writes it down again. The only person who's inconvenienced is Baruch. He's got to write the whole thing down again. <laughs> But God's memory is better than that of any 
recording device. Do you, do, do, do you see? How do you destroy the word of God? By dropping a few pages in the fire. And so gradually you start seeing that there is in Scripture a confluence of complex themes in which, on the one hand, God is said to be the author of all of it. So the New Testament writers can say, through the mouth of David spoken by the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit said through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. And so you've got the Holy Spirit and God speaking, and yet David is speaking, and, and, and you try, try to work out how that happens. If you want to read something really good on the subject, if I may risk sounding like a book peddler, there's an essay by Henri Blocher, Henry Blotcher, um, uh, written in English in the recent book, The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures. It is the most profound analysis of how you are to think of how the Bible is genuinely the word of God, the words of God, yet at the same time, nothing other than the words of human beings who in all their historic particularity across a century and a half, a millennium and a half of time, give us the holy scriptures. That's number two. Number three. Similarly, although God stands behind all the Bible as its ultimate author, once again, in choosing to work through many authors, he likewise authorized many different literary genres. There is a sameness to the Quran that you don't find in the Bible. I don't know what the exact percentage is. I've read it. 90%, 95% of the Quran is, is command. It's God telling you what to do and what not to do, threatening you with this and promising you that. But it's, it's command. There, there is not page after page of narrative. There is no difference between chronicle and apocalyptic. But in, in, in point of fact, the Christian Bible is made up of an incredible diversity of genres, of forms of literature. Lament, imprecatory psalms, oracles, genealogies, historical snippets, chronologies, letters, proverbs, parables, and on and on and on. Plus much more finely grained literary genres as well. And with very different responsibilities laid on the preacher as to how to get them across. Let me dare to read a few words from Jeremiah 20. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning and a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? How are you going to preach that? Well, if you're very prosaic and don't have much imagination, and think that all sermons should sound more or less the same, and realize that you've got to make points that command something or other, your first point might be, God wants you to pray that your mother will be eternally pregnant. <laughs> I, I, I don't, don't think so. God wants imprecations and judgment to fall upon the poor dude who brings your father the news that you're born. I 
I, I don't think so. What's gone wrong? It's, it's what the text says. What's gone wrong is the failure to recognize that this is lament. It's the voice of outrage and hurt because Jeremiah wishes he were dead. Better yet that he had never been born. And he's convinced God is picking on him and not fair. I challenge you to find stuff like that in the Quran. There's a dynamic of a, a God who interacts personally with his people. Along with the insistence on God's utter sovereignty. Do, do, do you see? And that is picked up across time. As God's people go through different experiences. And God chooses to utilize different human beings with their experiences and their different literary proclivities and their, their, their different literary sensibilities to produce the Bible and all of its spectacularly rich diversity. Well, that's the third point. That's really prolegomena. Now we'll get a little closer into the crucial issues for us. Number four. Biblical theology focuses on what individual books and corpora add along the time axis, along the axis of redemptive history. Now, I've already said that while systematic theology says, what does the Bible say about God? Biblical theology will ask, what does Genesis contribute to the doctrine of God? What is the structure of thought in Deuteronomy, and how does it relate to the rest of the Pentateuch? What does Isaiah or Haggai or Malachi or better yet, Hosea, what does Hosea contribute to the doctrine of God where God is presented as the almighty cuckold, the betrayed husband? What does that say about the doctrine of God? And why is it added at that point in redemptive history? Didn't all happen the same night. And if you have some dictation to Jeremiah, some of it comes in apocalyptic visions like those received by Daniel. So much so that Daniel himself doesn't even know what some of them mean. And when he asks God, okay, okay, I've written it down, now what does it mean? God basically says, mind your own business. It's for a later generation. And others, other parts of the Bible reflect profound experience. Uh, we are not to imagine that David comes in from a hard day of ruling, stretches out in his bed, ready to have a good snooze, and a voice comes to him out of the gloom and says, not yet, David, take up your quill. Write the following. All right, all right, I'm, I'm ready. The Lord, the Lord, is my, is my shepherd, shepherd. I shall lack, I shall lack nothing, nothing. Because transparently, Psalm 23 is not dictated. It's a reflection of his own experience. It's, it's not a reflection of, of, of apocalyptic revelation or an oracle sent from God or words that are dictated. It, it's, it's another mode of inspiration that is producing different books, different words, by different human beings at different times with different locales of experience along this, this axis of redemptive history. Do you see? So that it is very difficult to make sense of Hosea if you don't know when Hosea was written. It's very difficult to make much sense of the Acts of the Apostles if, for some strange reason, you thought it was written shortly after Isaiah. And the Bible thus comes together for us in sequences of revelations across about 1,500 years. Now, what this means, this is the important point that I want to make under this fourth entry.
What this means is that sometimes what you get is not a package disclosure, but something seminal. Let's begin with what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2 about creation. Do you know the Bible does not mention that God is king in Genesis 1 and 2? Melech is not there in Hebrew. There's no mention that people need to respond to God as the sovereign king. There's no mention. And yet if you just forget the word and ask what's going on, clearly God is reigning. He's reigning in creation. He's reigning with a powerful authority. And he's reigning in chapter 3 in judgment. But he's reigning. He's king, although the word isn't used. So is the kingdom theme there or is it not? Well, before we answer that question, is the term covenant there? And of course, in an august institution like this one in the Reformed Heritage, you all know that it's not there. But many of you will have read Michael Horton's book, Covenant and Eschatology, in which he argues that the covenant of works really is there, even though the word isn't there. And he can show how there's in, put in place an agreement between God and human beings with conditions and threats on both sides, and so on, so on, so on. Is the covenant there or is it not? Well... What about the sacrifice of the animal that produces the skins to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve in chapter 3? Is this a, a blood sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice? Text doesn't say so. It, it doesn't use typical sacrificial language. It doesn't say that this was a, a sacrifice akin to that of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. It's cast entirely in terms of God mercifully preparing coverings that were a little better than fig leaves. But if you begin to see how any one of those items forms an anchoring pot on biblical trajectories that develop with time, then although you don't want to say, Kingship is smartly introduced in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Covenant theology is already established by the time you get to chapter 3. Substitutionary sacrificial atonement is already established at the end of chapter 3. You don't want to say that. It's reading later stuff back into earlier stuff so that the material becomes anachronistic. You're reading the biblical texts as if they were providing a systematic theology. On the other hand, if you fail to see the connections and where they're going, then you're fa failing to discern the early steps of trajectories which really are clearly laid out in Scripture. Do, do, do you see? So you need more nuanced phraseology. You, 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 have, you have the seedbed of covenant theology. You, you, you have the beginning steps of, of a kingship theology. You have the beginnings of sacrifice. Yeah, yes, 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 the emphasis is on covering people up without substitutionary atonement. But anybody who then reads the rest of the Pentateuch, let alone the, the epistle of the Hebrews, who does not see some sort of bearing of this sacrifice on the later history of, of the trajectories of Revelation, is, is missing out on how to read the Bible. In other words... Biblical theology focuses on what individual books and corpora add along the time axis, along the axis of redemptive history. And therefore, some forms of biblical theological study focus not on what the whole Bible says, 
but on what Paul says in the Pauline corpus, or even what Paul says in Galatians, as opposed to what Paul says in Ephesians. It's more immediately tied to careful exegesis of individual books or of the corpora of a particular author. So you study John's gospel, but you might look at the corpus of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, even the book of Revelation. Different literary genres. All three of them are quite different. And yet they have obvious overlaps and connections as well. And it's worth asking what they contribute to the canon. What would the canon look like if they weren't there? What would be missing? And you start thinking through what are the layers of overlap with the rest of the Synoptic Gospels? What are the layers of divergence? What do the layers of divergence mean? Why is kingdom made so much of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and relatively little in John? Whereas John makes much more of the notion of eternal life and a little less of, of kingdom notions, although both are found in both. What does it add? How do you put it together? Biblical theology then focuses more narrowly on exegesis and the particular theological structures of individual books and corpora and of their place in the stream of redemptive history. So a lot of so-called biblical theology, a lot of biblical theology focuses then almost exclusively on the biblical theology of Ezra and Nehemiah or the biblical theology of Isaiah the prophet or the biblical theology of the wisdom literature or the biblical theology of Luke Acts or, or, or whatever. Number five, now it gets more interesting yet. Each one, you will have seen, leads to the next. In fact, it's building off the previous one or two. So also with this one. Biblical theology teases out the major themes that run through the Bible. In other words, it looks not only at individual books and corpora and asks what they're doing there, but it teases out through each of the books and corpora certain large themes that keep showing up again and again and again and again. Themes that are almost like the tendons of a body, this, the body being the Bible, the tendons that hold it all together. There are, give or take, about 20 of them. And there are another 70 or 80 minor ones. The major ones include, in no particular order of importance, covenant, temple, priest, sacrifice, kingship, creation, new creation, God the triune, which is an important theme even when God isn't mentioned, as in Esther, marriage, human flourishing, law, promise, and a few others. Now, any of those you can track out through the whole Bible. And the more you track them out, the more you discover that they become intertwined with one another. That's another point that I don't have time to develop this evening. You start tracking out the temple theme and you're pretty soon tied to the kingship theme. All you have to do is read 2 Samuel 6 and 7 to see that that's the case. You start uh, dealing with the, 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 the priesthood theme, and pretty soon you're tied up with a temple theme. And so on, and so on. So let me take a few moments, very few, to sketch out one of them. Now, again, this is not finely grained. I'm going to choose temple. 
There are entire books written on the temple theme in scripture. But here, here goes a rapid survey. Some people find the theme of temple first developing in the Garden of Eden. After all, if temple is the place where God meets with his people, the first place God meets with his people is the Garden of Eden. And if you object, yeah, but the word temple isn't used, nor is the word kingship, nor is the word covenant, nor is the word sacrifice. But there is a kind of proto-meeting place of God with his people in Eden. But let's not make it too complicated. I won't offer you all the reasons for going down that particular rabbit hole. Let's, let's jump all the way ahead to the tabernacle. Now, already there were some sacrifices that were offered by the patriarchs. And after all, Jacob has an encounter with God and calls the place Bethel, house of God. Well, that's temple language too, isn't it? In the middle of nowhere. A meeting place between God and sinners. And then you come to the tabernacle where the plans are given by God himself. About 30 odd times, God says to Moses in Exodus, see to it that you build it according to the plan that I gave you on the mount. See to it that you build it according to the pattern I gave you on the mount. Why? Because the structure of the tabernacle is, is clearly important, emblematic. It's, it's meant to teach some things. And that includes the holy place, twice as long as it is wide. And then the most holy place, built like a perfect cube. And in the middle of it, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of it, the so-called mercy seat, where the blood of bull and goat is shed by the high priest once a year behind the veil on the Day of Atonement, prescribed by God. And anybody else who dares step in there risks death. God's glory presides. And the cherubim with their wings stand over and guard this blood sacrifice altar. And when the temple is built then the same relative proportions are established at the time of Solomon. And once again, the glory so comes on the building that all the priests and workers have to flee it. Now, again, this isn't finely grained. I haven't mentioned, for example, the different places that the tabernacle stopped or the time that it was swiped by the Philistines and what happened to them with their hemorrhoids and so on. Um, I'm, I'm not being very finely grained, but that's all part of the trajectory of what the Bible says about uh, the temple, isn't it? Or the tabernacle. And then eventually the temple is destroyed. I've already mentioned that Jeremiah predicted it would happen. The Israelites could hardly credit it. God had established this place. And the people to whom Ezekiel was speaking couldn't fathom it at all. This would mean if Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is bulldozed, then there's no home to go home to. And then you come to one of the most remarkable passages in the prophecy of Ezekiel. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 11. It's part of the great vision of Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, and 11. In this vision, Ezekiel is transported in the body or out of the body he doesn't know. A bit like Paul. He's transported 700 miles to Jerusalem and he sees horrible wickedness and idolatry. Even in the holy parts of the temple. But God gives images of destruction that are coming to the city. God, represented by great glory, comes and abandons the temple in his vision and, and parks on the mobile throne chariot, which takes him outside the gates, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the Mount of Olives. It's a, it's a visionary way of saying, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to this city, he will destroy it because I've abandoned it. The only reason Nebuchadnezzar wins is not because God is too weak, but because I've judicially abandoned it. 
And so there is destruction and there is death promised to Jerusalem, which means there will be no home for the Israelites in Babylon to go home to. And then God gives comfort to them uh, through the words of, um, uh, of Ezekiel the prophet. Uh, it's, it's a long passage that I can't delve into at length. But at the end of it, what God says is, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Ezekiel eleven sixteen. That's temple language. God doesn't need the masonry for a temple. What you need to meet with God is... God. God can be their sanctuary even without the masonry in Jerusalem. God's not abandoning his people just because the temple's gone. That's putting too much confidence in the structure and not enough confidence in God. And eventually the temple is rebuilt, of course, as you know. There's no record of the glory ever coming upon it again. It's jazzed up quite a bit by Herod, of course, sheaths of gold and all of that. But Jesus predicts it's coming down. And it is utterly destroyed in AD 70. Again. And if there's any part of it left, Jerusalem is plowed into the ground in AD 132 to 135 under the terms of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And it is forbidden any Jew to live anywhere in the environs of Jerusalem again. But during the years of his earthly ministry, Jesus said things like, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. The opponents looked at him and said, this guy is nuts. The disciples looked at him and said, deep, brother, deep. They didn't have a clue what it meant either. According to John 2, the apostles didn't have a clue. It wasn't until after Jesus had risen from the dead that they remembered his words and they believed the scriptures. Jesus was claiming to be the ultimate meeting place between God and his sinful people. And thus the ultimate temple. So now you've got an axis running through the Old Testament tabernacle temple to Jesus, the ultimate temple. It turns out that this Jesus is the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate temple. And his veil, his, his body is the ultimate veil. So it's, un, it's, it's unbelievably complex and interwoven. Do you, do, do you see? But, but there can be other antitypes that are kicked up by temples. So the church is the temple of the living God because it's the place where men and women meet God. It, it's in the context of the church. In Pauline language, the, the church is not only the body of Christ, it's, it's the temple of God. And then in one or two remarkable passages, the individual Christian's body is the temple of God. That's the passage we always quote with our young people. But in fact, it's a fairly minor one in the New Testament. And then you come to the book of Revelation. And you read about the new heaven and the new earth. That the city is built like a cube. There's only one cube in the Old Testament. Just one. It's the most holy place. It's a way of saying that the New Testament, new Jerusalem, is already itself the most holy place. The place where God meets with his people. Do you see? And John adds as he records that final vision. I saw no temple in that city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That's Ezekiel 11 language, just made a little more Trinitarian. Do, do, do you see? 
So these are swaths that take you right through the entire scripture. And if you're preaching from some chunk in Jeremiah or Ezekiel or from Haggai, the prophet, and the rebuilding of the temple, or how important temple ritual is to Nehemiah and so on, you do a mistake to your people if you do not reserve some time, somewhere along the line, when you hit such passages of scouting backwards just a wee bit and, and scouting forward just a wee bit so that people can see where they are in the Bible's unfolding of redemptive history. Do you, do, do you see? These are the tendons by which the Bible holds together. Well, the last one. And this is by far the most complex one. But I'll be brief. Biblical theology makes clear where theological arguments depend on sequence, where they depend on the passage of time. Let me give you a couple of instances. I will have to go very quickly, but you will see the point, I'm sure. If you're following in your Bibles on iPhones or otherwise, I'm focusing now for a few moments on Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3.7, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Psalm 95 is clearly a meditation on what takes place in the years of wilderness wandering, where the people for 40 years tempted him and tried him, tested him and tried him, and, and made life so difficult, and God threatened them with judgment. They shall never enter my rest. And so now the psalmist says, assuming it's David or someone later, several centuries after the Exodus, he is saying, today, don't harden your heart, as you did in the days of the rebellion. Because if you do rebel, you will not enter my rest. Now, how is that picked up in the, following in the following parts of Hebrews? It's picked up in two ways. Number one, it's picked up in a moralizing arguments for the rest, a moralizing argument for the rest of chapter three. In other words, just as this is what happened to them, so you be sure that you don't go and do the same thing. They faced judgment and they died like flies in the wilderness because they disobeyed. Through their unbelief, they didn't take on the board, the word of God, and they died in the wilderness. So today, likewise, you make sure that you don't fall like flies in the wilderness, as it were, because you harden your hearts with unbelief and disobedience. Now, because the writer to the Hebrews is picking up Psalm 95, what you have at the end of Hebrews 3 is... The writer to the Hebrews, picking up a moralizing argument for his readers in his day, based on the moralizing reading of Psalm 95 for the people of his day, based on the Exodus narrative all the way back in, in, in the Pentateuch. Are you with me? So here's a moralizing sequence of arguments, but it's all based on the passage of time. You, you can't say, just like that, so also this, unless you have some sort of uh, distanciation between the two. But in chapter 4, the argument takes another leap. If Psalm 95 is treated moralizingly in chapter 3, it's treated typologically in chapter 4. Now the argument probes a little more deeply. It says, 
It says this in a, convince, in, in, a, in a tight fashion, but this is what it says. It says, don't forget that when the people were heading into the promised land, they were hand, heading into what was called the land of rest. God was going to give them the promised land, the land of rest. And they didn't get there at the time of Moses. They died like flies and they spent 40 years on the backside of the desert. But eventually they did get there under Joshua. They did get in. So they entered into the land of rest. Three cheers. Except, several centuries later, the psalmist is saying, Today, don't harden your heart or you can't enter into my rest. Which presupposes, therefore, that the entrance into the promised land was not the ultimate rest. It was only a way-stop rest. It was a, a type of rest. It was a, an introduction to rest. But it wasn't the ultimate rest because you still needed more rest at the time of David, centuries later. And now the author of Hebrews picks that up again, too, and says, and if you want more rest than what the psalmists knew about, there's rest now in Jesus. In fact, he says, I'm going to give you an even bigger axis to look at. And what he does in chapter 4 is starts with the, the, the little comment. Uh, they shall never enter into my rest, God says. My rest? God speaks of rest? Where does God speak of rest? So the author begins by expounding Genesis 2. God rests on the Sabbath day from all of his work. So if you want to enter into God's rest, you've got to cease from your works too. You've got to imitate God. So you have creation rest. Then the rest of the Sabbath bound up with a model of creation and the Sabbath rest in Exodus 16 and Exodus 20 and beyond. And then entering into the promised land, there's rest there. But it can't be the ultimate rest because there's more rest at the time of, uh, of, of, of the psalmist. Until you come to Jesus, and he doesn't quote this passage, he alludes to it. He says, there is the Messiah who comes along and says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Though he doesn't actually quote that passage from Matthew. Until ultimately, there is the rest of the consummation, the new heaven and the new earth. And suddenly, you've got not simply a moralizing argument, chapter 3. You've got a trajectory argument, a typological argument, how to put the Bible together, laid out for you very carefully in two half chapters in the, the epistle of the Hebrews. Do you see? In other words, biblical theology makes clear where theological arguments depend on sequence, on the passage of time. There's another one in Hebrews 7 that is even more interesting and more complicated. I can merely state it. I don't have time to track it out. This is the Melchizedek theme. Melchizedek shows up in precisely two passages in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. He's a priest king, if you please, a priest king. Now, anybody this side of David knows that you can't have priest kings. If you're a priest, you belong to the tribe of Levi, and you can't be king. If you're a king, you belong to the tribe of Judah, and you can't be a priest. Solomon tried, uh, Saul tried to uh, break that and, and lost his uh, dynasty because of it. But here is a priest king in place before the giving of the law, before the institution of the Davidic monarchy, and David, writing Psalm 110, must as he's reading his Bible one morning, pondering chapter 14 of Genesis, must say, how come he can be priest king and I can't? There is surely nothing intrinsically wrong with being a priest king. Maybe we need an ultimate priest king. Oh, I can see the wisdom for not having a priest king now. I mean, I'm corrupt enough as it is. If I had all the reins of power, I'd be even more corrupt. 
Kingship is different from priesthood. Better to work together. But still, there's Melchizedek, a priest king. Supposing we had an ultimate priest king who's not grasping for power. Born along by the Spirit of God, he writes of the Messiah in two oracles, one that establishes him as king, sit at my right hand until your enemies are crushed, and one that establishes him as priest. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the theological entailments are worked out so that the ultimate antitype for the priestly ministry of Christ, in the priestly ministry of Christ is based not simply on the Levitical priesthood, but on the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, have you noticed as I've dealt with these themes that none of them resonate in our culture? Walk in the streets of a big city, Pittsburgh, and find out how many people are really turned on by talking about priests. There might be some Catholics, and some of them are turned off themselves. Have you considered what you need by way of a substitutionary sacrifice, brother? Have you found an adequate temple? Are you a member of the covenant? Do you see? All of these things are just God talk words in our surrounding culture. Do you see? And the, the constant danger of preachers is that they're tempted to dumb all of that down so that you just talk about relationships and intimacy in my friend Jesus. But if biblical theology teaches us anything very colorfully, is that you can't make sense of the Bible without finding out what the Bible's categories are. Can't be done. Can't be done. So that whereas you have to start where people are using the vocabulary you know, if you just use theological jargon to biblical illiterates, then, then it goes sing right over their heads and they don't have a clue what's going on. I understand that. Yet at the same time, some of the preacher's job is moving from the known and the contemporary back to the biblical theological categories in which the revelation of Scripture is given so that you help people to understand how the Bible is put together. That's what biblical theology does. Such that on the long haul, having taught people how to put the Bible together, you also teach them how to synthesize it to form the magisterial structures of stable, systematic theology that's exegetically grounded. So both disciplines are supremely important. They're crucial. Systematic theology and worldview formation, in building syntheses, in big picture exegesis, in surveying and assessing the strands of historical theology that have come down to us, in deciding what issues are second-order theological judgments, like the eternal generation of the Son, important, but definitely second-order Synthetic questions like monothelitism and things like that that were important in the second century and are come back for a rerun at the beginning of the 21st. How you think through divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those are the domains in which systematic theology proves particularly strong. And biblical theology, extraordinarily useful in understanding the Bible in its own terms the Bible in the categories that are used by each individual author and corpus, the Bible as it is laid out across 1,500 years, the Bible with an emphasis on exegesis, 
And then you discover that sometimes the terminology of the Bible is not the terminology of systematic theology. Partly because systematic theology is putting different parts of the Bible together where, the, where, where language differs. L let me give an, an example or two. It's very important. We speak of a theology of call. But in Paul, the call of God is effective. As many as are called really are justified and sanctified and glorified. This spectacular golden chain of, of uh, Romans. On the other hand, call in the synoptic gospels is invitation. Many are called, but few are chosen. Or consider sanctification. This side of the Reformation, we know that justification is God's decisive declaration that sinners are just because of what Christ has done by substituting himself in their place. There is a great exchange that has taken place. They have his righteousness. He bears their sin. God declares them just and so on. But sanctification, by contrast, is a process that takes time. And there's progressive growth and holiness until glorification climaxes it all and we are utterly transformed and incapable of sinning on the last day in resurrection existence. But exegetes will tell you that the sanctification language in Scripture is used in a diversity of ways. The Reformers understood that. That's why Calvin, for example, could point out that some passages speak of what he called positional sanctification or sometimes called definitional sanctification. That is, you're already set aside for God, just as the shovel that was used to take out the ashes at the altar in the Old Testament is a sanctified shovel. It's a holy shovel. It doesn't mean it's moral. It doesn't mean it's progressing in holiness. It means it's set aside just for God. And in that sense, you see, there are passages in the New Testament that, that say, we are sanctified. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Well, if they're sanctified in the moral sense, boy, this is a pretty unsanctified church as far as I can see. But they're set aside for God already. That's their position. It's as definitional as, as justification. But does that mean that the Reformation doctrine of, just, of sanctification is wrong? No, 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 no. Don't jump to conclusions. The point is that sometimes the Bible speaks of sanctification without using the word sanctification. That is, it speaks of progress in holiness, like Philippians chapter 3. I have not yet arrived myself, but, but forgetting those things which are behind, I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, without using the word sanctification. And in other passages, Paul uses the word sanctification, but doesn't mean what we mean by it in, in, in systematic theology. In other words, the vocabulary of discourse in systematic theology does not always align with the vocabulary of discourse of particular biblical writers. Do you see? So again, part of the preacher's job is to make those connections for people, to help them read the Bible and other good literature intelligently, wisely, thoughtfully. Transparently, then, why doesn't the Bible read like a systematic theology? God himself judges it wise and good for his people to see the development, the unfolding nature of his redemptive purposes in history and in the world. Thanks be to God. Now, I think we have at least a few moments for questions. Um, there, I don't think there's a roving mic, which means you're going to have to speak up loudly. And we will be over by um, 8.30, one way or the other. And if you don't have any questions, then we'll be over, over even earlier. Yes? This is perhaps an impossible question. Do you want to turn around and yell it that way? This is perhaps an impossible question to answer. 
students asked me recently, um, why, why didn't God just reveal himself in a, one big data dump uh, all at once? Uh, but rather what we have is God revealing himself over 1,500 years. Why, why don't you repeat it again? Now you've got a microphone. Yes. Uh, recently, one of my students uh, asked this question. Why, why didn't God reveal himself uh, once for all in one big data dump, as opposed to uh, over a period of 1,500 years? Now, that might be, on the one hand, an impossible question to, to answer, maybe. But how might, you, uh, how might you respond to that question? Well, the first thing to say is that by one big data dump, it assumes a whole lot of text or propositions, a bit like the Quran that's essentially atemporal. Whereas what you have in the Bible is depictions of sacrificial systems and what happens to people under certain conditions and what faith looks like in existential experience and what promises look like in their fulfillment and, and so on and so on and so on. So that you could have had a data dump after all of those things had happened and then have a data dump about it, but, but it couldn't be a data dump about the Bible all the way back before any of those things had happened because it's not just data, it's, it's events and uh, re faith and re emotion and lament and all of those kinds of things. And uh, so, so the only way it could have been a data dump is if it had been a novel. Or in which case, a novel doesn't save you. It's, 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 it's not the words that save you. It's, it's, it's the actions of God in redemptive history that save you. And so it's a great mercy that God has not given it to us. I suppose God could have let the whole thing run and run and run and run and run and run, all of this happening, and then given a data dump at the end of it saying, this is what happened. Yeah, it probably could have. I fail to see how that's an, uh, an improvement because then it does not depend in any way on witnesses who saw and touched and handled they, they ate with Jesus by the sea after the resurrection. Thomas, put your fingers in these wounds. Do, do, do you see? And, um, and, and th this is part of what assures that what God revealed in history was really in history. Um, namely, that there were people who recorded these things. The only access we have to history is what witnesses said and wrote. And if instead you depend on a later data dump, then, then you are one step further removed from history. I think it's a great mercy that the Bible has come down to, it, uh, to us as it has. Yes, I see that hand. Oh, there's a microphone coming. We want to preserve your words for posterity. Would you say that uh, biblical theology is the more foundational discipline to systematic? Yes. Um, it's more foundational in the sense that in some ways it's a mediating discipline. In, in some ways it's a very good foundation for uh, systematic theology. Yes, yes, yes. The trouble is the word foundational is itself a bit slippery b because, because um, systematic theology is, is also born with us as we're doing our exegesis. It's not a straight line. First of all, you have the text. Then you have exegesis. Then you have biblical theology. Then you insert a bit of historical theology. Then you have systematic theology, the queen of the disciplines. It, it's not as straightforward as that because Everybody is bringing some amount of biblical, of systematic theology, some good, bad, or indifferent way of thinking about God back to the text when you're doing your exegesis way back here. You're doing back loops all the time. So Jim Packer likes to point out, for, for example, that the systematic theology, though it's controlled by the exegesis of the text shaped in biblical theology and all the rest, yet at the same time, it also, in some measure, controls our exegesis because we don't 
we tend not to go outside certain barriers um, uh, established by our systematic theology, such as it is at a time, so that we don't waste our time in endless rabbit holes in our exegesis. We're not starting every day an exegesis tabula rasa, that, that is, with an absolutely clean slate. We're starting out of a frame of reference that we've already adopted. And so th these things circle around. There is a sense in which good exegesis depends on already having good, good systematic theology. So uh, foundational is a bit tricky. Nevertheless, in terms of order of discipline, I would say that at a certain theoretical level, um, biblical theology tends to be focused more on the exegesis of particular books and passages and tends to be less interested in how those passages address directly the surrounding culture, whereas systematic theology tends to build a bigger picture and is more interested on addressing the contemporary culture. But they're only trends. They're not absolutes. It's, it, it's sometimes really hard to say when you've stopped doing one and started doing the other. Does that scratch where you itch? Good. There's a hand back there. Uh, you mentioned uh, Psalm 110 quite prominently and made the declarations that Melchizedek is a priest king, David is not a priest king, Jesus is a priest king. What if David actually was a priest king? I'm thinking about the episode where he's wearing the linen ephod, mm -hmm. the Ark of the Covenant's being marched in, there's David dancing mm -hmm. with all his might in mm -hmm. a priestly garment in procession. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of David as the founder of the liturgies of the temple, which is not yet built, but his right. liturgies determine its practice. Correct. I'm thinking of text where David seems to be at the altar and is not cursed the way Uzziah, his descendant would be cursed when, when Uzziah attempts to take Correct. the implements of priesthood to do sacrifice and leprosy breaks out upon the man's forehead. Uh, is it, is it um, construable that David indeed is a priest king and so therefore Psalm 110 in some way pertains to him, possibly also Solomon, but then in some more ultimate way, uh, uh, Jesus. And here I have in mind the exposition by Scott Hahn mm -hmm. of Franciscan University, not far from here. Uh, his somewhat recent book called um, The Liturgical Empire mm -hmm. is a commentary upon the books of Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And from this point of view that David and Solomon really are priest kings who establish mm -hmm. this, uh, this presence of God in this new way by temple and liturgy. I can't answer that briefly. Uh, let, let, me, let, let me mention a couple of points, first of all. Um, uh, he, he is not the priest king in the sense that he could then preside at uh, Yom Kippurim and become the priest who goes behind the uh, veil and offer the blood sacrifice. That, that would have killed him off good and smartly. Um, he, he is, as it were, the king who nibbles at priestly edges. And I think in that sense, he uniquely um, anticipates uh, a thoroughgoing priest king. But I think that, it is, I think that Scott Hahn is, is making a mistake when he reads too much into it. it, it it's, it's, it's over the top. The, the, the law forbidding uh, priests becoming kings and kings becoming priests has not been in any sense rescinded. And, and it, it sounds to me much more like exceptional circumstances with a nibbling at the edges that might point to something that is worth teasing out in the New Testament. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that on the Psalm 110 language, um, Jesus himself insists that David wrote it. 
Now, I know that's not popular Old Testament thought, but in these august circles, I'm sure you can swallow them. The superscription says that David wrote it. If a courtier had said, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, then the my Lord would have referred to the king. A courtier would be saying, my Lord said to David or whatever the king was who was on the throne. And a Scot can entertain that as a possible reading of the text. But if David wrote it, then when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, there's no way that my Lord can be a Davidic king. Which is what accounts for the strand of interpretation that has seen that as messianic all the way through. In which case, it's not, it's distinctively not um, referring to a Davidic king. But to someone who is, on the one hand, a Davidic king in the first oracle, and then second in the second oracle, yeah, yeah, he's a priest, but not in the order of Levi. It's in the order of Melchizedek. That's okay, because he is a priest king. He can't be in the order of Levi. That's forbidden. So I, 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 I don't think the biblical texts allow you to think of David as a full-blown priest king if by the priestly side you are thinking of the Levitical priest. And, and that was the order of priestly service that was in play, in operation, in David's time. And so that the oracle of, of Psalm 110 uh, really depends on what is, in fact, a kind of dismissing of the priestly order of Levi. You, you see, that's where I would have gone if I had had more time with, um, with um, uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 7. Um, the author of Hebrews chapter 7 goes so far as to say, in effect, that by the oracle of Psalm 110, roughly 1000 BC, God has already announced that the Levitical priesthood is in principle obsolete. That's spectacular because it's been superseded by another priesthood. If the one priesthood had been adequate, the author says, God would have not announced another priesthood. But God did announce another priesthood, which in principle, a thousand years before Christ, made the, the, the Levitical priesthood in principle obsolete, and with it the entire temple sacrificial system. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 13. And if we miss the point in chap Hebrews chapter 7, it's picked up in chapter 8, where the promise of a new covenant, in Jeremiah's terms, uh, 600 years before Christ, makes the old covenant in principle obsolete. In other words, part of the writer to the Hebrews argument is that when you account for the sequence of such things in their proper chronology, they're already showing you that centuries before the coming of Christ, there were already in places those structures and typologies that were rendering the structures of the old covenant in principle obsolete and thus in principle announcing the dawning of a new covenant. So that is the framework in which I would, I would put things rather than in quite so strong uh, uh, a set of terminologies as Scott Hahn uses. There's a question here. I have a question too. I'm sorry, I grabbed it. I'm the worst. Um, so this question kind of comes from a couple of different parts of your lecture. Um, and the fact that the intertestamental period is important for the systematic theology is important for like the historical, like all of that. And how you were saying that systematic theology is supposed to speak to the current generation. So does that indicate that like things that happened like say in the past thousand years or so also are things that need to be studied in depth in the theological framework in order to be able to have a sound systematic theology of today? 
It's a good question. Um, short answer is no. Um, but there's a longer answer that's yes. Um, th- th- this is what is called dialectical thought. Um, The history between the Testaments is particular in that it still focuses on the Israelite history and how you move from the categories that are in play at the close of the Old Testament historical description and the onset of the New Testament uh, historical description. And they're not necessary in the sense that they're necessary for your salvation. They're, They're part of revealed truth. They're just helpful in understanding where the Romans came from. You close the, the Old Testament under the Persians, and, and, and suddenly you've, you've, you've got the Romans. And, um, and wh- wh- where do they come? What has that got to do with anything? How, how, how does that fit into any, anything, let alone the prophecies of Daniel or something like that? How do, you, how do you get there? So to establish the historical sequence is a good thing. And when you think of how important um, the Maccabean revolt was and, and Hanukkah and stuff in Jewish life already in the first century, it's helpful to know something of what takes place second century BC and so on. Do, 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 do you see? Even though none of it is essential for understanding scripture, it's not essential in that sense. What takes place after the New Testament period? There's a sense in which all Christians are mandated to think about what takes place um, uh, in, in terms of Christian categories. Um, in the 1800s, the, the first half of the, of the 19th century in this country, you couldn't write a history dissertation in any um, uh, American university without some reflection on the doctrine of providence. It's hard to believe, but you, you can check for yourself. Look up old dissertations, and they all reflected on what, what our recent history says about what God is doing in history. Today, there's not a secular university in the country that will allow you to mention the doctrine of providence in, 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 when you do your history work. Do, do, do you see? Now, I, I would say that what we need is something that's a, a via media, a way in between. That is, there, there, there are some things that you can read in history about what God is doing on, based on what God has done in the past in revealed history. Do, do, do you see? You have to be careful that you don't, you, you don't read the wrong lessons in and and you, you don't give your interpretations the authority of Scripture and all of that. But when I, when I read some of the Proverbs and some of the injunctions and the prophets and some of the narratives of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, about how God um, brings about stupid rulers as a presage to his bringing down a country in judgment and so on, it's hard not to see things like that that have happened in world history. Uh, the, the, the foolishness that, that brought about World War I duplicate in World War II. World War I was the most stupid of all wars that had ever taken place in the face of the earth. And it was at the time when Western culture in particular, not least the Germans and the Brits, and coming along pretty fast, the Americans, were, were gangbusters in how the world is getting better and with education and our dilute form of the gospel and so on, we'll eventually make wars to cease and peace is coming and all of that. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. We've forgotten what the Bible says about judgment and about sin and the the prevailing capacity of the human heart to turn to evil. So in the Bible, evil is often shocking and horrifying, but it's never surprising because we believe what the Bible says about evil. We expect there to be genocide. We expect there to be cruelty and persecution. In in 1992, an an American uh, historian by the name of Fukuyama, historian, cultural commentator, wrote a book called The End of History. Uh, he didn't mean that history was coming to an end. He meant that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the communist 
capitalist divisions were finally coming down. And if history is made up of the struggles between empires and the struggles between great nations, well, eventually we're on the verge now of democracy running triumphant everywhere. And so there might be 300 more years of skirmish and so on, but we've come to the end of history as we know it, and now there's going to be peace. I remember when I read the book, I thought to myself, either you're right as Jesus, or Jesus is right, but you're not both right. Because Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. The end is not yet, you know. These are just the beginnings of travails. And, and, so, and so, likewise, when we face problems in this country where we think somebody's taking away our Christian heritage from us, what do we do? Whine? Or do we follow the example of the apostles? They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. So I would want to argue that there are many, many things to learn about history and from history from God's most holy word. And you have to be careful how you do it and, and so on. And you, you, your reading of what happens in the days of Thomas Aquinas doesn't have biblical sanction. It doesn't have a supreme authority. But, but nevertheless, you can make some sense of history from, from, from reading, um, from reading uh, the Bible very carefully. And, and thus there are ways in which God speaks to us through history. Uh, but that's a bit different from saying, and now there's going to be another book popped up at the end of it, which will close the loop. In other words, the final revelation has come with Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ comes back. So you got the no and they got the yes, and you're probably now very confused. There was a one here. Along the uh, same lines <clears throat> as the pre professor over here, um, my question has to do with, and I appreciate your, your, your talk tonight, it's very helpful, and I, I'd be the last one to that say that the Holy Spirit got it wrong in terms of the way he structured it, but there, there are times where I feel like when, when we're discussing particular theological issues with people, <clears throat> that a systematic theology you know, uh, would be helpful. You know, there's 2,000 Christian denominations, all of which claim scripture as their, their source. And so my, my question is, is that, is there any, any way that we can get out of this kind of hermeneutical fog to kind of focus us in as we, as we read the Bible, you know, <clears throat> via biblical theology as it's written, and yet be able to tie, you know, for example, I, I, have, a, I, I have a dear brother and I'm talking to him about um, egalitarianism versus complementarianism, woman ordination. Your name was dropped, by the way. <laughs> um, but, but those kinds of things. In other words, the way the Bible's written leaves a lot of interpretive wiggle room in my mind, uh, you know, as evidenced by all the different denominations. Is there anything that we can do to get beyond that and kind of focus in on, you know, real exegesis that, that, that where we can say this is what Scripture is saying and kind of lock us in to interpret the Bible correctly, that, that kind of a thing. There are lots of things you can do. That's another lecture, just to introduce it. There are lots and lots of things you can do, but all of them have to do with reading the Bible again and again and again, and willingly, eagerly coming under its authority. For about 10 years, I worked part-time with the World Evangelical Fellowship. My mandate um, was to bring Christian leaders together from the evangelical world, from all the continents except Antarctica, we had no penguins, um, from different denominations who were all committed to a high view of scripture to address some particular topic where we would work together to see if we could come to a common mind. So we had reform types and Arminians, we had Pado baptists and Baptists, we had some names that you know, like um, 
Ed Clowney showed up for all five of them. And, um, and some names you wouldn't know. We had some um, uh, Assemblies of God people and, 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 and so on. But they all had some reasonable theological training. Uh, they all had some Greek, some of them Hebrew. They all had a high view of scripture. And uh, I would set the papers that needed to be written. They would write them, send them to me. I would send them out to all the groups. Then we came together in Cambridge, England, and discussed them for a whole week, paper by paper. Very intense, 15-hour days. And then under the criticism and revisions, they'd go away and revise them. They'd come back to me, I'd edit them, and it would pop another book. We did five books that way. And what astonished me about it was how much agreement we got. You needed certain conditions. You needed people who were willing to change their mind under the mandate of scripture. Willing to say, oh, I think I'm wrong. I think you're right. We had a few contributors who could never admit that. But then they became useless as dialogue partners. You needed people with a similar level of training. If somebody's basing an argument on Greek exegesis and the rest of the people in the room don't know any Greek, it's pretty hard to advance. Do, do, do you see? We, we needed people with um, uh, a willingness to discuss and weigh and listen and not just talk. But granted a few of those things and a commitment to the brothers and sisters so as to love one another and pray for one another as part of the discipline of those days. I am astonished at how much agreement we reached on many, many, many complicated issues. So yeah, I think it's possible. But it takes time and work and discipline and study. Why should that surprise us? Somebody has said the Bible is like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. So that very simple people can understand the Bible and some of its dimensions. I've got to tell you another story. A friend of mine, he's a grandfather now, and he has a grandson who's, who's 13 or 14. I, I told this story the other day. I don't think it was here. You haven't heard this yeah. I just told it to you personally. I knew I told it somewhere. Well, you can get Scott Scheidmantel to tell it to you afterwards in case I get it wrong. Um, he, he, had a, he, he has a grandson who's 13 or 14, but mentally um, disabled with a, an understanding mind of about four and a half or five. And he was riding with his grandson in the car one day on a longer trip. And he just tapped in a CD to see what, what would come up. And it turned out to be a CD of somebody reading the, the, the book of Revelation. And my friend thought, well, that's probably not exactly the best CD on the occasion. And said, well, I'll, I'll change it to some music. And the, 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 the grandson said, no, I want to hear this. So they listened to the entire book of Revelation. The grandson stopped two or three times and, 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 and said, you want me to change to music? No, I want to finish this. So about an hour and a quarter, reading the book of Revelation. At the end, the grandfather said to the grandson, did you understand that? Yes, I think so. Well, what do you think it, it says? What do you think it means? It means, he says, God wins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Out of the maids of, mouth of babes and children. Do, 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 do you know? Um, but that doesn't mean that he could have given a detailed exposition of the two witnesses in chapter 11. <laughs> do, do, do you know? So, so um, 
that, that means there's also some thought on the nature of first order, second order confessions and things like that. It's a, it's a complicated one. It's, not, it's surely not too surprising that the, the mind and thought of God as disclosed in the word is, is, is going to tease us for all eternity as we probe more deeply. And as we learn more, we discover again and again and again to our shame how much we should have got before that we hadn't got yet.